Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. Father, as we open your word, we just sang as a prayer and as an act of worship, show us Christ. Thank you that all the Bible is about him from beginning to end. And as we open your word, we ask you to open our hearts to its truth, that you would help us uh, to see what it means and how you want to apply it. We know your word says the man who's blessed, who acts on the word, who finds real freedom through obedience. So thank you for the truth that sets us free. I pray for those who are here with many represented needs, some who are sick in a very severe way, some who can't be with us for that reason, some whose hearts are overflowing with grief and sadness over the loss of a loved one, others who are on the top of their game today, but help us to be sensitive to Rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Thank you for the way you bind our hearts together as a body of believers, that the Spirit of God makes us one through the blood of Christ and through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, just as you promised, you didn't abandon us like an orphan, but you sent another just like yourself, your Spirit to live in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can be our teacher today, and we ask that you take the word that you inspired and you would illumine it to our hearts, that you would perfectly cater it to the need of each person listening. Help me, come fill me, and anoint me that together we might lift up Jesus. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 8 as we consider when the trumpets sound. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells us that when a nation gives up on God, that God gives up on that nation. When a nation fails to acknowledge God's right to rule over them as a people, then God will give them over to the lusts of their hearts, and the people will worship the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed. And so we have a huge movement in this country that is giving more attention to Mother Nature than they are to Father God. And so it's become really almost a religion in our country. One article I read recently expressed that many denominations and world religions are joining together over this issue. And so the Pope recently met with the Dalai Lama of Tibet. They are collaborating over global warming. One headline recently flashed, Earth Day, something we can all believe in. And the article was calling all of the faith systems of the world this spring to unite to save the planet. And then you have many so-called evangelicals who don't want to be left out, and they have formed a new organization called the Evangelical Climate Initiative. The ECI, as it's abbreviated, is a group of over 300 senior evangelical leaders in the United States who, quote, are convinced it is time for our country to help solve the problem of global warming. The organization has signatures like Bill Heibel, Rick Warren, emergent church leaders like Rob Bell, who denies the eternal retribution in hell, emergent leaders like Brian McLaren, who affirms homosexual marriage. Add to that now recently the evangelical, um, and the National Association of Evangelicals have signed on to it. They represent approximately 45,000 churches, 30 million churchgoers. 
and a number of evangelical colleges and seminaries. People somehow truly believe that it is in their power to save planet Earth. And more and more people are rejecting God's right to rule. And we've seen this pattern directly from Romans chapter 1, where we as a nation said no to God and we replaced creation science with evolution. And God gave us over to sensuality and God gave us over to homosexuality. And now God is giving us over to that horrible list that we find there because we have chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator God. And so to help pastors and priests and rabbis and organizations celebrate Earth Day, they have written hymns for that Sunday, thousands of sermons are available to pastors. I don't buy my sermons online. I prepare them in God's presence. But one sermon I could have purchased was called Penguins, Polar Bears, and People Too. Or there's one for Jewish rabbis, Passover and the Global Climate Crisis. And so this April, tens of thousands of churches, including evangelical churches, will wave the banner of Earth Day. Now, certainly, as Christians, we don't want to abuse the planet. I don't want to take my motor oil and pour it into the marsh. But with that said, when someone becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus, their perspective on life changes. They automatically recognize that abortion is murder, a murder that can be forgiven, but nonetheless, life begins at conception. They hate things like child trafficking, and they certainly don't want to damage the planet. But I have news for you today from the Revelation. The damage that man has done to the planet doesn't even begin to compare to the damage that God Almighty is going to bring upon it. God will destroy water and land like man has never seen. And in the end, he's going to obliterate the entire planet, the Bible says. He will burn it with fire and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, with that said... Let's read our passage. Last week, we looked at just two verses. Today, we'll go through the 13th verse. Let's start in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded and something like a great burning mountain with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter." 
the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, by now, I think you recognize, as this chart illustrates, that there are three primary divisions to the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 concerns the things you have seen. That's a vision of the exalted, glorified Christ in heaven. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the things that are. Seven literal, actual churches that were functioning in John's day, to whom he is writing this book to, and not just for them, but for every church throughout the history of the church. And then the futuristic section underscored twice in Revelation 4.1, the things that are after these things, metatata, the after these things, the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. Now, let me zoom in on the context of chapter 8, because many of us are walking in this for the first time. The futuristic section begins with an open door in heaven, Revelation 4.1, where the church has been caught up. That's emblematic of the church that has been led into heaven. And so it's not by accident that the church is not mentioned between chapters 4 and 18. We do not see the church again until they come back with Christ. When you uh, look at chapters 4 and 5, we see the church along with some tribulation saints worshiping in heaven. And then in chapter 6, the wrath of the Lamb and the sealed judgments begin to unfold. And it is so intense that Revelation 6.16, the people say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the, lamb, on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Then in Revelation 4 and 5, again going back, if you remember when we were in those two chapters, we were witnessing scenes of glory. We're in heavenly places in contradistinction to chapter 6 where we're brought down to earthly places. We moved from scenes of joy to scenes of judgment. And so in the 6th chapter, all the way through the 19th chapter, there's a structure with three sets of sevens. Now, there are many sevens within the seven. There are sevens all the way through the Revelation, and not by accident. It is so profound the way God structured the book. No man could have ever thought this up. But it is very important you understand the architecture of the book and how it unfolds. And if you don't understand that, you'll become a little bit confused. And so the judgments are sequential. The first trumpet cannot sound until the seventh seal is opened. And the first bowl cannot be thrown to the earth until the seventh trumpet is blown. And so first, as this slide illustrates, we saw the seven-sealed scroll. The first uh, four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal, if you remember, brought a huge number of tribulation saints who are slaughtered for their faith because they choose to follow Jesus. Then the sixth seal, there were cosmic changes in the universe that we witnessed. And that brought us to this interlude. You notice between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, which opens up seven trumpets, there's a space or a parenthesis, and that's chapter seven. 
And so we're going to see six parenthesis seven, six parenthesis seven, six parenthesis seven with the sealed trumpet and bold judgments. And in each of these parentheses, God is going to look back and show us what has been happening during the time of the great tribulation. So when you come to chapter seven, if you remember, God saves 144,000 Jews who become evangelists to the world and they witness across the planet. And the promise that Jesus made, this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world will be fulfilled. Then when you come to chapter eight, as this next chart shows, the seventh seal is broken which in turn opens up seven trumpets. And as you read through these chapters, you discover that there is an explicit cause-effect relationship between the opening of the seventh seal and the sounding of the seven trumpets. The opening of the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets such that uh, when it happens, there is 30 minutes of silence in heaven. And so in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to study the first of these six trumpets, and then almost to allow us to catch our breath because it is so intense, there's another interlude, as you can see, in chapters 10 to 14. In chapter 10, we'll study the angel in his little book. In chapter 11, we're going to study the two witnesses that God is going to use to preach the gospel. Just like there was an interlude in chapter 7, there is an interlude in chapters 10 through 14 before the bold judgments begin. Chapter 15 is somewhat of an introduction to the bold judgments in chapter 16. So again, this next chart to help us to visualize it. The next great event is the rapture of the church. The church is caught up. And then there's a small period of time, weeks, days, possibly months, unknown. And then the 70th week of Daniel starts. That period is seven years long. That's affirmed by Jesus that's affirmed by the prophet Daniel, and that's affirmed by the Revelation. And the time frame is very specific. It's divided into two halves. It's three and a half years each, a times, times, and half a times, 1,260 days, uh, 42 months, all terms used to describe the two divisions of, these, of this seven-year period. And the first half Largely, Israel's protected. Then an event takes place in the middle, which will bring about the opening of the seventh seal that will sound the seven trumpets, and Israel is persecuted. It will culminate with Jesus coming back to the earth to rule and reign right after the battle of the Armageddon. And so the function of chapters 8 and 9 is to help us to see these six trumpets as they are blown. And then when the seventh trumpet is blown, 11.15 tells us that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And you think, well, the book's over. But then he gives us a second parenthesis because we're not going to see what happens when the seventh trumpet is blown until we come to chapter 16 when the seven bowls of wrath are introduced. And so in chapters 12 through 14, God is going to identify for us seven personages that are playing a critical role during this seven-year tribulation. And we're going to see how the Antichrist came to power, and we're going to see what was happening in these early years of the tribulation. 
So chapters uh, in chapter 4 through 7, we saw heaven filled with praises, the people of God praising God, and we saw that great multitude of people who are saved in the tribulation, and that's one of the functions of it. God not only wants to save Jewish people, but a great multitude of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. But when the seventh seal is open, 8-1 indicates, we studied it last week, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, heaven has never known silence as far as we know until this point, this future point in human history. And this, I suppose, might be the only silence we will ever see. But it's like all of heaven is holding its breath for what is about to happen. It's like you parents, you know, all of a sudden things get real quiet. And you find out your little three-year-old boy has taken the markers and he's drawing an image on the living room wall. Or your little girl is playing Betty Crocker and she's making a cake there in the kitchen. Well, listen, it gets silent because something is up. And all of heaven watches as these seven angels are given these seven trumpets. When the Lamb, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now remember, the root cause of this is the Lamb breaking the seventh seal. And this is different from the trumpet judgments, and I mentioned this to you last week. This is not a scroll with seven seals across the outside, but the scrolls, are, a seal is broken and you, un, you unveil the scroll. And another scroll is broke, another seal is broken and you roll the scroll a little bit further and another seal is broken. And, and so these are seven scrolls all the way through the scroll. And there have, there's been one scroll that was found just like that. And of course, we talked about the meaning of that scroll and its implications. But you can only see one seal judgment at a time. But what's different here is when the seventh seal is broken, you can see seven angels and all seven trumpets that they will bring upon the earth. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see the seven bowl judgments. So you get a picture all the way to the end. Now wonder. It's announced that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. And what is going, what we're going to study with these trumpets and bold judgments are so awesome, so terrifying. It just takes your breath away. And there's silence in heaven. But it is going to usher in the second coming of Jesus, where He will rule and reign for a thousand years. We studied it when we looked at the Christmas story. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus came the first time into this world, and he never sat on the throne of his father David. But he is going to. The prophet Isaiah said, A child is going to be born, a child is going to be given to us, and the governments will rest upon his shoulders. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That has never yet happened, but it is going to happen. And so what we see here, and we'll study it when we come to the 20th chapter, Jesus will literally sit on David's throne and he will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years before he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And so verse 2 indicates 
And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Again, this is different from the seals where you can see only one at a time. Here, John witnesses the seven angels and their seven trumpets all at once. And if that were not enough in the seventh trumpet, are there seven bowls? But what is mentioned here are the seven angels. And I noted for you last time, it's articular, not just seven angels, but the seven angels. And if you know your Bible, you know that God created angels and he ranked them and he gave them order because God is a God of order. Some of those angels have fallen, but they are still ranked and under an authority structure as it is with God's holy angels. Well, these are some well-positioned angels who stand in the presence of God. And the participle that's used in the Greek means they've been standing there for a long time, much like the angel Gabriel who came to announce the birth of Christ to Mary. He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. He's a high-ranking angel. Now, some think that these seven angels are seven archangels, and I suppose they might be right, but that would be an argument from silence. Jewish tradition says there are seven archangels. Catholics actually have given a name to all seven. There's actually only one that is named in the Bible, one archangel, namely Michael. There may be more, there could be more, but there's only one that is specifically mentioned. But in either case, these are seven high-ranking angels, and they're going to blow the trumpets. Now, we discovered last week that trumpets are more than just instruments for music in the Bible, but they are instruments of announcement. And God often blows a trumpet, as this next slide shows, for different reasons. In the Old Testament, God called, blew a trumpet to call the people to work. He blew trumpets to call the people to worship. He blew trumpets like in Ezekiel to warn the people. And he blew trumpets as well to call people into war. There are two key trumpets that the Bible mentions in relationship to the rapture of the church. The trumpet of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, and the last trumpet, the other great rapture passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, that's Michael, and with the trumpet of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And we noted that the Romans, like the Jews, also had trumpets, and they had two specifically named, as brought out by the great Jewish historian Josephus in his book on wars of antiquities. There was a first trumpet that called the Romans into battle, and Paul had just mentioned that in the prior passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 8. He said, if someone blows a trumpet and it's an indistinct sound, you won't know what it means. And of course, he's applying that to people who spoke in uninterpreted tongues in the church. It didn't do anyone any good if they weren't interpreted. And so there was the first trumpet that called people into battle. And then there was the last trumpet that called people home. We're waiting for that last trumpet. It will call the church, the body of Christ, up into heaven. The battle will be over. We will then go into the presence of the Lord, and we will witness firsthand what we are seeing this morning. This is a futuristic 
event. Now, it's not the last of the last trumpets in the sense that there is a great trumpet that happens at the second coming. And then through the millennial reign of Christ, there are trumpets sounded for over a thousand years. But nonetheless, these seven high-ranking angels have seven trumpets. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, Moses records for us in the Torah, a very detailed description of the tabernacle that later becomes the temple. When Moses came down from that mountain, as Cecil B. DeMille uh, placed him with those Ten Commandments in each army, he also had a set of blueprints. And he didn't show that, but God gave him some specific blueprints of a temple in heaven. So Moses couldn't build a a tabernacle however he wanted to build it. God had specified specifically how it should be built. And we've already begun to see some of the temple furniture. We looked at the brazen altar earlier in Revelation. That was the altar that the priests would sacrifice um, an animal on because they couldn't just approach God flippantly because we're sinful. And since the life is in the blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, atonement needed to be made. Someone asked me on the Bible line about atonement during the millennial reign. Yes, there will be atonement. Now, we know Moses referred to the fact that the blood of animals atoned for sin. Well, we know that they can't take away sin, but nonetheless, they atoned for sin in the sense that they were a picture. And we're going to study later on a future temple beyond the tribulation temple that will be constructed during the millennial reign of Messiah. The prophet Ezekiel writes about it. And just as we practice the Lord's Supper as a memorial looking back, even so, we will be in the temple as a forever reminder of what Jesus did, especially for those who will be saved during the millennial reign. We'll come to that, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But there's all this temple furniture. Here's a picture of the golden altar. How do we know it looks like that? Because God tells us exactly what it looks like. He gives us a detailed description of what it would look like. And if you remember from the Christmas story, John the Baptist's father was at this very altar that sat right in front of the veil that brought you into the Holy of Holies. And there he is ministering. They took the coals from the brazen altar where the blood had been spilt to affirm that you couldn't come just any way you chose. You came on the basis of blood, prefiguring the blood of Jesus who would atone and take away and propitiate the sins of the world. And they mixed incense with it. And as they did it, they prayed to God and the incense rising up into heaven was a picture of our prayer coming to God as a sweet aroma. Now, look at Revelation 5 and verse 8, or just listen to it. If you remember, we studied one of these altars. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. 
So when we read here in our text this morning about incense arising up to God, it's defined for us as the prayers of the saints. These golden bowls represent our prayers. You might want to put next to verse 3, Psalm 141, verse 2. Let me read it to you. King David said in that psalm, may my prayer be counted as incense before you. That's the picture here in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Now, again, we saw this golden altar in chapter 5 along with the brazen altar in chapter 6. And these pieces of furniture are actually in heaven this morning. Do you know that there is a temple in heaven that someday as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to fix our eyes upon that? You say, how do you know it? Because the revelation is going to write about it and the book of Hebrews mentions it. And the book of Hebrews is quoting the book of Exodus. Let me read Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, and then notice the change in typeset telling you this is an Old Testament quotation, and God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which you, which was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given a pattern up on that mountain when he went up there for all those days. And the word pattern is the word tupos. And so that's an important word in your Christian vocabulary. It's translated pattern or type, depending on your English Bible. And so you will hear a pastor speak of a type. A type is an Old Testament picture of a coming reality. And there are many types in the Old Testament. Abraham up on top of Mount Moriah, taking Isaac, his uniquely begotten son, and getting ready to offer him as a sacrifice was a type of the Lord Jesus. The ark is one boat with three floors with one door, a picture of our triune God. And the only way to come into a relationship through the triune God is through the one door. And so you have all these Old Testament pictures of a future reality. Jesus said the scriptures referring to the Old Testament speak of me, and he meant exactly that. And so if you remember the book of Hebrews, you had these Jewish people who become believers in Jesus. They don't give up their Jewishness any more than you give up your ethnicity when you believe on the Lord Jesus. A Jew is a descendant of Abraham. And so their Jewishness was still there, but they were believers in Jesus. But when they believed in Jesus, because the majority did not, he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. To be a Jewish Christian was to invite persecution in your life. You were ostracized, you were rejected. Some of the Jewish Christians I led to the Lord at Duke University were disowned by their families. And that still happens today. And so some of the Jewish believers thought, well, we'll just go back and we'll identify with our Jewish brethren and we'll participate in the temple worship. Because after all, they prefigure Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no, 
That temple was just a copy of a heavenly reality. And you are working off of a copy when you need to be dealing with what's real. You're dealing with a set of priests who are of a different lineage than the one true high priest who works in a real temple in heaven. And so you're dealing with shadows and copies when you need to be dealing with reality. When we come to Revelation 11, we're told, then the temple of God, literally, was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There was a movie years ago about, I think, trying to discover some ark somewhere. I can tell you where the ark is. It's right in heaven. There is an ark literally in heaven. Now, there's some debate whether there's one under the temple mount in Israel today, but I can tell you where the real ark is, and it is in heaven, and we'll study that a little bit later on. So it's this temple that John sees. Again in verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar, the brazen altar where the animals were sacrificed, holding a golden censer, this bowl, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar. So he took the coals that had been covered with blood, and he put him in his censer, and he added the incense to it. And again, it was a picture of the prayers of the saints ascending into heaven. So here's this eighth angel. There are seven angels holding a trumpet and another angel. By the way, some think that this angel is Jesus. It's not, and I'll tell you why in just a second. This is a real angel. But he takes this bowl, and he adds to it the incense, and you see the prayers of the saints ascending to God. Now, by the way, this is a favored verse of Roman Catholic expositors, and they say that this is a proof, and they make it a proof text out of its context, but it's because of the way they approach the revelation. And if you weren't here for the first sermon, you might want to go back and listen to that because we saw there were three major approaches to the Revelation. Some say it was all fulfilled before 70 AD. You really have to spiritualize the book of Revelation to come to that conclusion. Some say it is being fulfilled in our day. Luther thought that the Pope who was alive in his day was the literal Antichrist and that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. He was a little mixed up in his eschatology. Uh, but most, historically, the early church fathers, the late church fathers, until Origen comes along, and Origen doesn't want to talk about a king who's going to literally rule on the earth, because that would defy Caesar, and that would cost him his head. So he spiritualized the revelation. Augustine bought into that. The Roman Catholic Church adopted it. Calvin and Luther put a different spin on it and said, no, it's all history for the most part, with the exception of the second coming in the 19th chapter, but the church has replaced Israel, and, and so they have to really butcher the passage. The problem that we saw with that is that every single prophecy for the first coming without exception was literally fulfilled. And for us to think that God is going to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming differently is to apply a warped hermeneutic or principle for interpreting the Scripture. But Roman Catholics use this as a proof text that uh, he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And they say there are these saints in heaven that we are to pray to. Well, sainthood in Catholicism is based on two things, merit 
and miracles. You had to have done at least one credible miracle in merit. And so the Pope recently declared Mother Teresa, voted on by the Cardinal of College of Cardinals, to be a saint. Sainthood in the New Testament is not based on merit or miracles. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment you believe, you are called a saint. Listen, we don't have to pray to Mary. We don't have to pray to St. Christopher for safety on the road or St. Anthony if we've lost something. There is one mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus. We go directly to God. Now, there was one popular Protestant expositor who wrote a best-selling book in the last decade on heaven. Of course, he takes a very loose view of the revelation. And so because of that, a lot of the passages that deal with the future, he's kind of spiritualized and rewritten. And in my view, given the evangelical church, a distorted view of heaven. He takes passages that deal with the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ, and he says that's the future earth, that God's not going to burn this earth with fire. He's just going to fix it up. No, friend, he's not going to fix it up. He's going to literally obliterate it and create a new heaven and a new earth. But he takes the position that these are saints in heaven, since this has all been fulfilled before 70 AD, who are praying for us on earth. The saints in heaven are not praying for us on earth. Remember, this is a futuristic scene. This has not even yet happened. This is out in the future when the church has been raptured and we've been caught up in heaven. We will witness this very thing. These are born-again believers, church saints, tribulation saints, who are praying for God's kingdom to come. I mean, how many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter to me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has not yet happened, but it is going to happen. Christ's will, God's will on earth is going to be literally fulfilled when he comes again and he sits on David's throne. And this certainly is not Christ. And we know that definitively, though I heard a sermon once, how this angel is Jesus and by his blood, he takes our prayers to the Father. It was rather an entertaining sermon, but it has nothing to do with what God says here. I saw another angel. Remember, there are two words in Greek for another. There's the word heteros, and there's the word alos. We have one word in English. There are two words in Greek. The word heteros, we get our word heterosexual, referring to a different sex, or heteroorthodoxy, referring to a different type of teaching. There's heteros, another of a different kind, and then there's alos, another of the exact same kind. Jesus, for instance, said, I'm going to send another helper, referring to the Spirit. He's going to be just like me. And that's why he said, I will come to you. If I ask you for a heteros biblios, another book, you could give me any book you wanted, a book on fishing, a book on hunting, a book on geography. But if I ask you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book just like this. You would have to give me another Bible. This is an alos angel. This is another angel, just like the other seven that have just been mentioned in the prior verse. This is not Jesus. This is a real, literal, actual angel. And so here are the saints in heaven. They've been crying out. We've studied all already. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, will you keep from judging the world? And God is going to take their prayers 
And like incense rising up into heaven, God gives us a physical expression of their prayers so that we can see the cause-effect result. They are praying for God's righteous judgment on the earth. Some people say, that's not a Christ-like thing to do. Just read the imprecatory Psalms where the psalmist calls God's judgment down on the lost. Listen, there is a righteous judgment that the believer should affirm. And these saints in heaven know that there are these earth dwellers, not people who just physically live on the earth, but people who are committed to the earth, who are slaughtering God's people. And they're asking, how long, oh Lord, will you allow this to happen? Sometimes I look at the evil in our world and the widespread immorality and murder and wickedness. And like John, I just say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. We're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down to the earth, verse 5. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, don't miss the connection between the throne and the altar. God is a sovereign God, and He can do whatever He chooses to do, but very often He works in response to the prayer of God's people. And so this censer is filled with the fire of the altar there in the heavenly temple, and it's thrown down to the earth as a picture of the judgment to come. And there followed peals of thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. We saw those same sounds and pictures in Revelation 4 and verse 5. It's an ominous feeling of what is happening because God is getting ready to announce a new phase, and with it comes an earthquake. And earthquakes in the Bible are not indiscriminate. There are fallen earthquakes, but then there are God-ordained earthquakes. And if you want to do a study on earthquakes in the Bible, it's fascinating to see the relationship very often between an earthquake and when God has done something or is getting ready to do something. Now, that brings us into the seven trumpets. I know you're waiting. When's he going to get into the outline? I'm glad you're listening. We're going to go now to the first trumpet. The first trumpet is the brewing storm. The first trumpet is the brewing storm. We read now in verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, if you remember from last week, I gave you this chart. And I showed you that from the book of Daniel, we get the big schematic of the seven-year tribulation period. We often call it the 70th week of Daniel, that last seven years in human history. Jesus gives us a lot of the details to that schematic when he's up there on the Mount of Olivet and four of his disciples ask about his return to heaven. And the book of Revelation gives us a lot of the fine details. So we were not surprised to see that false Christ mimicked the white horse rider, that the wars to come that Jesus spoke of pictured the red horse, famine the black horse, death the pale horse, martyrs uh, that he spoke of during the tribulation, the martyrs under the altar, worldwide chaos and the sixth seal and so on, all the way through to the abomination of desolation, that when that event happens... There is going to be greater tribulation like the world has never seen. Now, understand this whole seven-year period has been called earlier the Great Tribulation in Revelation 7 and verse 14. Not Great Tribulation, but the Great Tribulation. 
He's referring to a specific time frame in human history, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And if I use that term and you have no idea what that means, go back and listen to the last four sermons I did in Daniel chapter 9, where I go through four one-hour sermons giving you the schematic for the book of Revelation. And if you get that, it will open up the whole book of Revelation to you. It's otherwise you're trying to look at a detailed plan without seeing the big picture, all right? But I'm trying to give you the big picture, and I'm reviewing it a little bit each week as we work through. But there's an event that takes place that Daniel says happens right in the middle of the seven-year period. Jesus tells us the exact same thing in Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... When you see this event happen where the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation goes into a rebuilt temple and as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, claims to be God Almighty, we'll see why people will believe that later on in the Revelation. But when he does that, I'm telling you, the world is going to change dramatically. As bad as the seal judgments have been, Jesus said, when that event happens, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. We saw in the third chapter that this great tribulation encompasses the entire world. There has never been a time in human history where there's been turmoil that has affected the entire planet all at once, but that time is coming. And Jesus will then say a few verses later, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, that is believers, those days will be cut short. You have to twist the Word of God, spiritualize it, and do it a great injustice to say that all of this has been done. Why do I even harp on this? Because now the majority of evangelical expositors believe that the revelation was all fulfilled before 70 A.D. And good men, Alistair Begg, John Piper, good men whom I love and appreciate, but they're wrong. And they have done an injustice to this section of Scripture. This is not Daniel the historian. This is Daniel the prophet. He wrote a prophecy that Jesus connected in the Olivet Discourse with his second coming. Still out there in the future. Hasn't happened. But when that event happens, the abomination of desolation that we will study in detail when we come to Revelation 13. Look out. Watch out. Because all hell is going to break loose, and that's why there is no doubt 30 minutes of silence in heaven. You know, very often after a tragic event, we have a moment of silence. In heaven, they're going to have 30 minutes of silence before it even happens. That's how awesome it is. Look at verse 7. The zenith of God's judgment starts here. The first sounded... And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet sounds, it announced the judgment on the land, and it's going to affect the entire planet. Now, it appears during this time frame, again, we're in the second half of the tribulation when this happens, that um, when, when this happens, it's not by accident 
that these first four trumpets that we're going to see refer to literal trumpets. Now, one of the trumpets, there's a simile that's used, like something. But we've seen, apart from the similes, when there's a simile where it says, this is like something, then you discover what it's like, the meaning of the symbol, and then you literally believe it. But the reason I'm bringing this up, again, because there are people who say the revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, was all fulfilled before 70 AD, there's nothing ever in all of human history that has ever even happened like this. These are called later in the book plagues. And just as the plagues in Egypt were real plagues, there were real rivers of blood, real frogs, real gnats, real flies, real cattle that literally die, real boils, real hail, real locusts, real darkness, and real death on all the firstborn. This is very, very, very real. And just as Jesus believed in a literal worldwide flood, and just as Jesus believed in literal fire that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah who was swallowed by a literal real fish, we have to lay aside some preconceived system of theology that says the church has replaced Israel that was rooted in the anti-Semitism of Luther and Calvin. And we have to lay that aside and let the scriptures speak for themselves. Now, this first trumpet presents a grim picture of devastation. Again, it says a third of the earth was burned up. Fire, hail came down mixed with blood. Throne of the earth, a third of the earth burned up. A third of the trees burned. All the green grass gone. Now, these are very clearly God-ordained judgments. In fact, the syntax of verse 7 indicates that they are sourced in God Almighty. Now, don't forget, I've already noted for you this morning that the seven trumpets are divided into four and three. First is these four trumpets that are going to affect the earth. Then the last three trumpets, the three woe trumpets, directly affect man as individuals. And much like the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt, don't forget those ten plagues, real plagues, that God brought on Egypt. He didn't just pull them out of the air. Let's use frogs. Hey, let's use, let's use blood. You know, no, they represented ten gods that the Egyptians falsely worshipped. And so he said, you like the frog god? Let me give you some frogs and so on and so forth. The day is coming when God is going to judge this politically correct, evolutionistic-minded earth with judgment like they've never seen. And in the end, that when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, not at which, but in which, at the end of the day of the Lord, God will take this entire earth, Peter says, and he's going to burn it with fire. And Revelation 21.1 says he'll then make a new heaven and a new earth. But modern-day evolutionists, they're more concerned about global warming than they are with God's coming global meltdown and judgment. And in our day, more and more people attribute this world that we're walking on to evolution and not to the creative hand of God. The evolutionist says God did not create the universe. Man created God as a figment of his imagination to bring solace and comfort to his heart. Evolution is the master. But I want to tell you, as you watch the inhabitants of this storm, and as we read through the rest of Revelation, you're going to see there are no agnostics and no atheists. Everyone 
is going to acknowledge that God is the one who is doing it. But in spite of that, so many will still harden their heart. Now, God pulls hail out of the sky for a reason. Because as Isaiah 28, 2 indicates, you might want to write that above the word hail. I told you there are over... Uh, 300 specific references to the Old Testament and the 404 verses of the Revelation. Hail is descriptive of God's justice that comes down from above. Fire, you might want to write Hebrews 12, 29. God is a consuming fire, which speaks of his holiness that the earth dwellers have ignored. And then blood, that's descriptive of life. Leviticus, the life is in the blood. And God through blood describes life and death as the creator, something that man has ignored. Now, we will see that most people who are going to get saved are going to get saved in the first half of the tribulation. Doesn't mean that there is not salvation in the second half. But the vast majority of people who get saved will get saved in the first half of the tribulation. Again, that's one of the functions of the tribulation, to bring Jews and Gentiles to faith. It's not like God says, let me see if I can think of something to torture people. No, God is a God who sees beyond temporal punishment and pain to the eternal wrath that will follow after this whole time frame is over. And so God in his sovereignty, 13 times over in this section of scripture, mentions a third, a third, a third, a third. Why not a fourth? Why not a tenth? Why not half? Because we're going to see when we come to this second parenthesis in chapters 12 through 14, we're going to see what's been going on during these trumpet judgments. And we're going to see that there is an unholy trinity that is going to mimic God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Satan will take the place of God the Father. The Antichrist will take the place of God the Son. And the false prophet who will point people to the Antichrist to get people to worship him he will take the role of God the Spirit. And so three is the number of God, and I don't think it's by accident because of what is going on during this time, as we'll study it in the parenthesis, that God through a third, a third, a third, a third, a third is judging the world. So there's the first trumpet, the brewing storm, and it brings great devastation to all the green plants on earth. The second judgment, the second trumpet is the bloody sea, the bloody sea. It impacts the oceans of the world. Look at verse 8. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now notice, it does not say a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, but rather something like a great mountain. This is a simile. The object which is thrown into the sea is compared to a great burning mountain. In many ways, this huge mountain ball of fire could picture, I suppose, an asteroid. There are literally thousands of asteroids that are hurling through space. NASA has labeled over 3,500 of those asteroids, and they tell us that the largest one is called Ceres that is 620 miles wide. Now, I don't know if God is going to use one of the asteroids that's already in existence or if he's going to create a brand new one. He can do whatever he wants. But notice what this burning mountain of sorts does. A great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships 
were destroyed. Now, here's a picture of an asteroid. It was really a meteorite. I mean, just a fraction of the size of some of the asteroids and meteorites that have been cataloged that fell on Siberia in 1908. I mean, it destroyed, devastated over 1,000 square miles. And they said when it hit the earth, they felt the impact in Western Europe. Now, John, when he writes this book, it's 95 AD, he either heard or maybe he witnessed only one super great natural disaster up to that time in his life when Mount Vesuvius, the volcano, explodes. And of course, it literally buried Pompeii and destroyed ships anchored off sea there in the Gulf of Naples. But now he has a picture of this burning mountain that hits the sea and which a third of the sea is tainted with blood and a third of all the sea life is dead. This is no doubt not just a natural disaster. This is a divine miracle. It is an expression of God's wrath on the water. Why the water? Because all the evolutionists say that life springs from water. Why do you think every time they, they, they explore someplace and they want to see if there's water on Mars? Because their thought is, is that water is the source of all life. And so God is going to literally judge the water with hema. We got a word hematology with blood. Notice in addition, a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, according to the World Fleet Monitor, I did some studying on this, the the number of ships on the planet has really grown dramatically. In 1980, there was 24,867 fleets, uh, ships, and this is accepting, with the exception of fishing boats and, and naval boats that were registered. And in 2017, there is 87,483 ships. Now, you have to add to that the 108 countries that have Navy vessels that are about 30,000 plus, and that doesn't include your little boat that you go out in the marsh with, all right? Well, think about this. A third of all the ships on the planet are gone. We rely heavily on them. These ports in Savannah and Charleston and Baltimore and Boston and New York, they carry our supplies up and down the coast. That's going to be hindered greatly. Think in addition, all the fishermen who can only see dead, rotting carcasses where a third of the fish in the sea are gone. God is judging the world, and it's not by accident. And this is a triple judgment. It's a, it's a judgment on the, the, the water, the ocean water. It's a judgment on the marine life, and it's a judgment on the sea. And God is over this judgment, just like he was over the judgment in Jonah's day. In Jonah 1, verse 4, it says, And the Lord hurled. I know some English translations say sent, but the Hebrew text says the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea that the ship was about to break up. You remember the book of Jonah. I preached it 20 years ago. I need to preach it again. I wasn't real satisfied with that. But God gave me an outline back in the 1980s. Chapter 1 is the prodigal prophet. He's running from God. Chapter 2 is the praying prophet. They're in the belly of the fish. Chapter 3 is the preaching prophet. And chapter 4 is the pouting prophet. You remember that? 
Anthony remembers. He's shaking his head. He, he remembered it. All right. Well, remember, God sent that storm. This was a divine storm. God is going to literally judge the world with this mountain of fire that comes across the world. The brewing storm, the bloody sea, third. The third trumpet is the burning star. Think with me for just a moment. I'm almost done. The burning star. The third trumpet is sounded beginning in verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Now, the Bible says in the book of Job and in the prophet Isaiah that God has all his stars named and numbered. Remember that? Lift up your eyes and high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, and he calls them all by name. Well, God calls one of his stars, and he allows it to disintegrate in a way that it touches a third of all the freshwater bodies upon the earth. Now, some people say this is impossible because they say a star is so big that if it hit the world, there would be no planet Earth. Well, listen, it is the Greek word lampos, and it could refer to an asteroid or a meteor, but... Nonetheless, it's most commonly used of a star, but God allows this star to break up. And God aims the star as it breaks up so that not a half or a tenth or all, but a third precisely of the rivers, the freshwater rivers in the world will be poisoned. It's a controlled miracle. We studied a controlled miracle recently when we were in the book of Acts, the 16th chapter. Remember Paul and Silas who were in jail? And suddenly the Bible says there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, some earthquakes result from living in a fallen world. But God sometimes brings specific earthquakes. The big one we've never seen yet. We're going to see it. We're going to study it later on in the Revelation. But in Acts 16, this was a divine earthquake. Number one, it was localized. It affected just the jail and not the whole city. Number two, it was controlled. The ceiling didn't cave in. The walls didn't fall down. And number three, it accomplished the purpose for which God sent in. All the doors opened and all the chains fell off. Well, God is going to send this burning mountain in a third of the waters and a third of the springs of water will be polluted. This great star from heaven burning like a lampost, like a torch. You know, a torch as it it burns and it flutters. This star is going to come down and God's going to allow it to disintegrate across the planet. And look at verse 10 again. The third angel sounded, this great star fell from heaven, a third of the rivers and the springs of water. And the name of the star, God names it, it's called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Absinthos, it's kind of an awkward Greek word, but it gives us our English word absintha, which refers to a particular liquor that men like to drink. It's a very bitter liquor. Now, I've never had it and don't plan to. I always thought it odd that people have to develop a taste for something they don't like in order to accomplish their goal to get high. But in either case, that's the word that God uses, and it's the name of a plant in Israel that is a bitter plant. But unlike this plant, this plant, this star named word wormwood or absinthos, when it hits, it will make the waters not just bitter, but poisonous so that many people 
die. So think about what's going on. The ships, they're disabled. The plants have been destroyed. The water has been fouled. The fish are dead. Even water to irrigate the land, so much of it is bitter. There are a lot of rivers in the world. Um, one geography expert catalogs um, uh, 3,000, excuse me, 165 major rivers in the world. And by a major river, they have some uh, qualifications like the Nile that's 4,258 miles long or the Mississippi that's 3,710 miles long. And off of these major rivers, you have all these side rivers that feed the population across the planet. Well, a third of them are all going to be fouled. It's going to be a miserable time to live upon the earth. This brings us to the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet is the blackened sky. We read now, beginning in verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. One third of the sun, moon, and stars were struck so that a third would be darkened, affecting both day and night. They're going to have eight-hour days. Think about what that's going to do to the temperature on the earth. Think about that. what that will do to your ability to, to grow something. This, by the way, is a fulfillment of what the prophet Amos said of this coming day. Amos chapter 8, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Now, if people have pursued wisdom in all kinds of places, and a lot of people pursue it in the creation. Some people have literally as their religion, the creation. And God is going to judge the creation in this day, and the things that people have followed and given their lives to are going to be judged. And God is going to bring darkness on the planet. And of course, in one sense, I suppose some will like that. Paul will write to the church at Thessalonica, for you, referring to Christians, are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. Let us be alert and sober. For those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Do you know that most evil takes place at night? Most murders take place in the dark. Most people who get drunk, get drunk in the evening. Most people who are sexually immoral do so in the evening hours and the night of in the blackness of night. Why? Because men love the darkness rather than the light. Well, the darkness is going to be accentuated and extended, and I can't imagine what will happen. Then, verse 13, I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven. Uh, the King James interprets that as an angel, thinking that this is maybe one of the cherubim, but all of the Greek texts say an eagle. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. It's as if God announces as an expression of mercy to the whole world through this eagle. You say, well, an eagle literally speak. Look, God can make a parrot talk. He made a donkey speak. God can do whatever he wants to do. He's going to make an eagle shout. If you can believe the first verse in the Bible, you can believe the rest of it. And he's going to announce to the whole earth, 
to those who dwell on the earth, literally earth dwellers, not just the people who are living on the planet, but we're going to see as we work through the Revelation, this term that is used 12 times in the Revelation, it is a specialized term to describe those people who have given their life to this world only. T-L-O people, this life only people, and they are not going to respond. Now, how are we going to apply this passage? You say, this is a rather dramatic passage. What does it mean for me? I'm not even going to be here for this. Well, all Scripture is profitable and it's for edification. So let me suggest some applications as we close. Number one, where's your focus? Is it caring for this earth or caring for men's souls? Where is it? I can tell you during this time, there'll be no more Earth Day celebrations. People won't be talking about whether we should drink out of a styrofoam or a paper cup. They're going to be doing all they can just to have some water in a cup. And you can't believe the literature that's sent to me as a pastor. Sample Sunday school literature for children and for adults put out on evangelical presses on this whole Earth Day emphasis. And how we should celebrate Earth Day. If anything, we need to celebrate Salvation Day. Born-again Christians are not called first and foremost to shine the brass of this Titanic that in the end is going to go down and God's going to burn the whole thing. Now, again, I don't think we should abuse the earth, but our focus is not just on trying to prop up a planet that God himself is ultimately going to obliterate. Our focus needs not to be on saving this earth, but on saving souls. Secondly, are you an earth dweller? And we'll see that first term repeated and defined all the way through the Revelation. Are you heaven bound by a second birth? You're one or the other. There's no in between. John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away, he will say, and also it's lost. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know, at the beginning of human history, heaven and earth were united because their first parents initially honored God and obeyed His will, but then they listened to the voice of the tempter, and earth came out of harmony with the way God originally designed it. But there's a gateway that God has provided from this coming, scorching, burning earth when God will ultimately make a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness reigns. And that gateway is Jesus. He is the door. No one can go to the Father but through Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved." and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If you're not saved, I invite you to go through the gate, through the door named Jesus. He's the only one who can deliver you. This is going to happen. The events we are reading are going to happen. And there's coming a day when the church will be gone and anyone who's been in a church like this, it will be forever too late. It could happen before this day is over. You say you're trying to scare me into heaven. Look, I'd rather scare you into heaven than lull you into hell. 
It's real. This is going to happen. And if you are a Christian, where are you pointing people? What are you investing your life in? Some local club, not that it's wrong? Or do you see that club or that hobby that you're engaged in as a tool, as a vehicle to share the love of Christ? In the end, it won't matter how big your house is, how much money you had in the bank, what kind of car you drove. In the end, the only thing that will matter to you is what you did for Jesus Christ. Now, our Father, we thank you that your word is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Help us to have ears to hear today and to apply what you have said that we might be engaged in warning men and women and boys and girls. I pray more people would come to my Wednesday night series, Father, that they might learn to share their faith and, and introduce people to the Savior. But I pray today, Father, for someone who's here or listening, live streaming, or maybe on one of our other campuses that do not know you. Thank you that whoever will call upon Jesus will be saved. Help someone to come through the only door of salvation. Help them to trust that his death, burial, and resurrection is able to save. And help us, Father, in this brand new week as we encounter various people in different places to have a sense of compassion in our heart, gratitude for what you've saved us from, but compassion for those who we see, empty lives, trying to find meaning. People, many, who are headed for an eternity without you. Help us to care for their souls, to engage them personally, to invite them to church, to share our testimonies, even to take them through the gospel. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.